going to be continuing our study through 1 Thessalonians. We're in chapter 5 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. And this is part 2 in our series entitled The Disappearing Church. We're looking at some very exciting things pertaining to the rapture and the great tribulation and what's going to be happening at the end of the age. If it's your first time with us today joining us through this study, last week we looked at the disappearing church covering two kind of ends of the spectrum. One in that the church that was filled with regular churchgoers, we've seen a decline just across the United States of America where those that would be considered regular churchgoers have kind of disappeared. And it was one of those things that through the pandemic where everything was switched to online, that there was that lack of connection, that lack of accountability, and even that change of schedule where it wasn't a part of your everyday routine anymore to be a part of the body of Christ. And so we're hoping that as the wheels and the gears start turning again of churches being back together, gathering together, that we'll see just a resurgence of those that would consider themselves part of the church really attending the church. And this is a very important subject, what we're looking at again today. Uh, The subject we're looking at is the end times, the rapture of the church. We're going to touch on the great tribulation and what the book of Revelation says in regards to what will happen at the end of this world. Now, Really, as we study these things, some people are intimidated by this. Some people kind of just brush it off like we don't study biblical prophecy. We don't study end times because it's, we don't even know how to begin. Well, if we take things verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, as we study through the Bible, we believe that God will give us understanding of what his word says. The Bible says, if you lack wisdom, ask from the Lord and he'll give it to you liberally and without reproach. And we ask for that every time you open your your Bible. Every time you come to church, I hope that in the privacy of your own heart that you would say, Lord, please speak to me. Give me understanding as to what your word is saying. And I know that if you do that, that the Lord will reveal himself because he desires to do so. And so let's go ahead and pray. Let's ask the Lord to bless the reading and study of his word. And then we will hop in in chapter five of first Thessalonians. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you, Lord, though there is a high of 80 today, Lord, that we have a nice breeze and we're in the shade. We thank you for that. We ask, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to your church, Lord. Lord, we ask that each individual, every marriage, every family, Lord, every child, young and old, Lord, boy and girl, we pray that you would minister to each one according to your perfect knowledge of what each one needs. And Lord, we ask now that you would add your blessing to the reading and to the study of your word. And we ask these things, at, we ask these things in Jesus' name and we all say, amen. Now, if Jesus can come from last week's study, if Jesus can return from his, for his church at any moment, it really should serve as an impetus for the church to be ready at all times because the Holy Spirit is at work even now. And his work in and through the church is really the preserving force that's in the world. 
The preserving force in the world is the Holy Spirit, convicting the world of sin, of judgment, of righteousness. The Holy Spirit is the preserving force working through you as the church. That's why your life makes a difference for righteousness and holiness. That's why the things that you stand for that honor God affect the culture around you. In Matthew chapter 5, though, verses 13 through 16, Jesus speaking to those that were his followers said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Jesus goes on to say in verses 14 through 16 of Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And so Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And that's why we gather together as the church, to stir up one another for good things, to stir up one another for good works, to go out into the world and to be that light, to be that salt. And we'll explain what Jesus means here in just, the, in just a moment. As the church, if you have faith in Jesus, you're to be the salt and the light. You're to be the salt and the light in a decaying and dark world. Now, salt is the preservative that would be applied to meats before refrigeration existed. It would hold back the rot and decay of bacteria. They would heavily salt those things that were perishable. And so too, the church in 2020 as well is to withstand the the bacteria of society's moral decay. That we would be that preserving force, yet it would seem that those calling themselves the church are often in a state of decay themselves. Often when you think of even that word decay, you think I often jump to, I think of that word uh, associating itself with teeth, dental care. You know, whether it's toothpaste or mouthwash commercials that you'll often see on TV or, you know, just your dentist explaining to you what is happening in your mouth when you eat too much sugar and don't brush your teeth. See, your teeth, as you know, have a protective layer around them called enamel. But what happens is that bacteria will search for a way into that tooth. It will search for a weak area, a crack, a tiny little pinhole. Anything it can get its foot in the, hole, in the door with, it will seek to exploit. But what will eventually happen is that crack or that hole in your tooth will grow and grow and grow until it kills your tooth, literally and figuratively. I mean, if you've ever had a bad cavity, you know what I'm talking about, the type of pain. See, personal holiness serves as the enamel for the individual Christian and the collective church. It's that protection around it. Sin will seek to invade your personal holiness any way that it can. It will look for that crack, that tiny hole. Any way that it can make an entrance into your life, it will take advantage of it. And see, when defense or security systems are down, we often refer to them as being compromised. Hey, the security system's been compromised. Our defense system has been compromised. The same applies for the Christian that compromises their personal holiness before the Lord. See, through compromise, your defense system against sin goes down. 
And just like a cavity, it can begin very, very subtly. It can begin very, very small. But for the church, we let our light shine. You let your light shine. We remain the salt of the earth by living our lives in holiness before the Lord. And in so doing, we bring glory to our heavenly father. When you do what's right, you bring glory and honor to your heavenly father. When you are serving the Lord, you are honoring him. When you are living as a holy man or woman in your actions, in your thoughts, you're bringing God glory. You are protecting yourself against the attacks of Satan. See, when the rapture takes place, as we know that catching away of those that have faith in Jesus, when the rapture takes place, those that are filled, those countries that are filled with the largest amount of, might I say, genuine Christians will be hit the hardest. When you think about it, those that live in countries where there are the most genuine followers of Jesus, those countries will be hit the hardest. And so the atheist... Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist countries will be virtually untouched. And you can see how China and Russia and the Middle East countries, as uh, the Bible prophesies, will be the very countries rising to great power and will attack Israel. You can see also how the European Union will be the conglomerate of countries from which the Bible tells us more than likely the Antichrist will rise. And so as the church, we're to be ready for the coming of Jesus, as those who are in faith will be caught up in the air and forever will be with the Lord in heaven. I don't know if you realize this or not, but for our date, October 11th, 2020, the rapture of the church is the next thing on the list of biblical prophecies. It's the next big thing that's yet to happen meaning that everything that needs to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church has been fulfilled. I mean, what an exciting time that is for us to live as the church, as, the, as a Christian. You believe that? Like we're waiting for Jesus to come for his church. That's the next thing to tick off the list. Now, for those of you that are new to our church, on our website, we have a statement of faith where we list everything that we believe to be true from God's word. And if you haven't had a chance to check that out yet, then I would encourage you to do so because it's very, very clear with biblical precedent and foundation, it's very clear what we believe as a church. A couple things to mention, though, as it pertains to our church, we believe in what is called a pre-tribulation rapture of the church, meaning that the church will be caught up with, the, with Jesus in the air before the seven-year period of God's judgment known as the Great Tribulation. The rapture, meaning the catching up of the church and those that have died in Christ will be raised and will meet Jesus in the air as he comes with those that have had faith in Jesus before us. I shared this last week, but from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 52, Paul writes and says, what I'm saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in a blink of an eye. 
when the last trumpet is blown, for when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living will also be transformed. In a moment, the smallest fraction of time that can't be subdivided any further, in a blink, in the blink of an eye, before you even have time to process what is happening, Jesus will catch up those believers. In 1 Thessalonians, we read this last week, chapter 4, verses 17 through 18, Paul writes and says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And he says, Therefore comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. Now, if we were not to be raptured until after the tribulation, I personally don't see how that brings too much comfort in that the tribulation of God's wrath being poured out upon the earth will be the worst time ever in our world's history. I don't find comfort in the fact that I will have to endure great tribulation. Now, just so that everyone's on the same page, there are three common positions on the rapture of the church, and those positions go as such. Pre-tribulation, which means the rapture takes place before the tribulation begins. Mid-tribulation means the rapture will take place at the three-and-a-half-year mark during the Great Tribulation. And then there is a post-tribulation view where the church goes through the entire tribulation period and experiences the wrath of God. Now, we will not be going into the arguments for mid- and post-tribulation views. I don't think that you cannot have fellowship with those that may hold to different views. I don't think that that is a necessary thing that we have to cut people off. I think there are people with different views, and hopefully your views are based upon what God's Word says. But I will share with you why I believe from the Scriptures that it fits best to believe in a pre-tribulation rapture view. See, the pre-tribulation view sees the seven-year period of God's wrath being poured out upon the the earth. The pre-tribulation view says that the church is caught up before what is a separate period of time where God judges the earth. However, the pre-trib view says that the church will be removed as that preserving force The church will be removed as the very thing that is holding back God's wrath from being poured out upon the earth. The church will be taken out of there. And after the seven-year period called the Great Tribulation, that Jesus will come in what is referred to as the second coming of Christ. Remember last week, Jesus doesn't touch foot on on the earth. He comes in the clouds with the saints and those that are alive are caught up in the air. Those that have died in faith are caught up in the air and they go back to heaven back to the kingdom of God according to what the scripture says. But that there is actually a distinction between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus. The second coming, and we need to understand these terms, is the time when Jesus comes to set up his kingdom on the earth after the tribulation and will reign for what is called the millennial reign of Christ, which is a thousand years. The pre-tribulation viewpoint will study the passages in the Bible, if you hold to such a view, that pertain to the rapture and the coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, they will study those things and see them as two distinct events. Now, Don couldn't be here, as I mentioned earlier, so I grabbed a couple things from him that I'd like to share with you. 
according to those that hold a pre-tribulation view, the destinations are different when it comes to the rapture and the second coming. And I like to quote, he says, the destinations are different between the rapture and the second coming. When Jesus comes for the believers at the rapture, he takes them back to his father's house in heaven. However, at the second coming, the Lord brings the saints with him as he comes to the earth to rule as king. End of quote. So you see the destinations are different. Jesus comes, takes the saints to heaven, his father's house. There are many mansions there. After the great tribulation, the second coming of Christ, Jesus comes with the church to the earth where those that are on the earth will be judged and those that are considered the saints will rule with him. So the results are different too. The rapture is a time of rescue and the result of the second coming is a time of judgment. So as the church, we have a future and a hope of God excusing us from his great wrath to come. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, it says, And they speak of how you are looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. Listen to this. He is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. So as the church, we're not looking for who the Antichrist may be, and we're always like, oh, I wonder if it's him, or I wonder if it's that guy. Oh, it's for sure France, or whatever it might be. No, listen, we're not looking for who the Antichrist may be. We're certainly not looking forward to experiencing the great tribulation. We are, however, looking for the coming of Jesus in the clouds to take us to heaven. So is the coming of the Lord to take us to heaven something the church needs to be worried about or excited about? I believe the the latter is the case. We're excited. We're anticipant. We're ready for Jesus to take us home. And so point number one that we're going to be looking at in our new section, verses one through five of chapter five is this, the day of the Lord's judgment. And he writes in verse 1, 1 Thessalonians 5, But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Now, some here get confused. And it's easy to get confused when you're reading through these things. But in the original language, the Greek language uh, in which Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, this phrase in verse one, but concerning. These two words are a phrase that in the Greek language are used to characterize a new line of thought. And so as you're going from the end of chapter four, talking about the rapture of the church, you are now going to see how he is going to be speaking about something that is new. Now, the thing to be aware of is that the rapture of the church marks the beginning, if you hold to a pre-tribulation rapture view, the rapture of the church marks the beginning of God's judgment on the earth. They are two separate things. They both affect two separate groups, and we'll get to that in a moment. So in our last study, we looked at the hope and comfort of the rapture being taken out of the world transformed into our glorified bodies and to remain with Christ forever. And if this is to bring such joy and happiness and hope to the believer, then what happens to the unbeliever? Well, Jesus said in John chapter three, verse 36, he who believes in the son has everlasting life 
And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God abides on those who reject the Son of God. And this is the unfortunate truth. That though the rapture will be fantastic for the believer, it's going to be awful for those that reject Jesus as their Lord and Savior. For this reason, the church is to be the church in the world. We're to be the light, to be the salt, to open our mouths, to live lives that exemplify a personal relationship with the Lord. Now, there are some people that hate Jesus. There are people that hate the church. They hate morality. They hate the biblical worldview. They hate being accountable to God. They don't like the idea of God. They want God to be dead. They want to be their own gods. But no matter what you want, that does not negate what God's word says. So we, as the church, if we're truly going to be the church, we must have something that is different about our lives, the way we communicate, the way we live, the way that we conduct ourselves, conduct our business, the way we interact with those around us. See, when the rapture of the church takes place, the judgment of God upon the earth begins. And here in verses 1 and 2, we transition from the rapture of the church to the judgment of the world known as, and you need to file this away because this is a separate, a separate event that is happening on the earth once the church is taken out. So you have the rapture of the church and then you have what is referred to as the day of the Lord. Now this day of the Lord is not referring to a single day event. This phrase, the day of the Lord, is a familiar Old Testament expression. It actually denotes the day when God intervenes in history to judge his enemies, to deliver his people, and to establish his kingdom. The day of the Lord, this phrase, is used in the Old Testament numerous times. Maybe you've studied the Old Testament and you're like, oh yeah, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. But it's always used as a time to describe. It's always used as the phrase to describe the time and to express God's wrath and judgment followed by the establishment of his kingdom. The day of the Lord was spoken of in the Old Testament. However, the rapture was not revealed until the era of the apostles. The day of the Lord has been coming. And in addition, the church will not be affected by this day of the Lord for they will be caught up before the wrath of God begins. I would like to, I'd like to read to you a selection of Old Testament passages that describe the day of the Lord. If you like to turn there, you can. It's Amos chapter 5. So Amos 5 verses 18 through 20. It says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on a wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? And then from Zephaniah chapter 1 verses 14 through 18, it says, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. So this is Zephaniah, Zephaniah 1 verse 16 through now 18. It says a day of 
trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. It says, I will bring distress upon men and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. For he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. And then lastly, from Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 through 11 says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate and he will destroy its sinners from from it for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light the sun will be darkened in its going forth and the moon will not cause its light to shine and then the lord speaks in isaiah 13:11 i will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity i will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible So when you read that, no doubt like I did, you don't want anything to do with that. I don't want anything to do with that great and terrible day of the Lord's judgment. That's not something I look forward to. That's not something I ever want to experience. That's not something that I want to have to worry about. And so when Paul writes to the Thessalonians in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. So the rapture of the church and the judgment of God upon the Lord will, uh, from the Lord will come upon the world when you least expect it. When you least expect it. Jesus said in Matthew 25, verse 13, so you too must keep watch for you do not know the day or hour of my return. And throughout church history, the members of the church have lived in expectancy, have lived on their toes spiritually, not desiring to compromise, not desiring to conform to the ways of this world, not desiring to to do anything that would cause them to be found not ready for Christ's return. See, the day of the Lord will be a divine and public intervention of God in judgment, judging his enemies, dealing with the nation of Israel, and finally establishing his kingdom on earth. Jesus taught his disciples to be ready for his return. Paul reiterates that here saying, you watch, you be ready. Paul instructed the Thessalonians not to be preparing for the wrath of God, but for Jesus' return. Talk about two different paradigms. The follower of Jesus looks forward to the return of Jesus, the rapture of the church. And because I know where I am going to be, I am not worried about what's going to happen after See, the world will not be ready for the rapture of the church, nor will they be prepared, nor will the world be prepared to face God's judgment. And Paul gives us a little insight as to the condition of the world that will catch them off guard, lead them to be caught off guard. It says, for when they say, verse three, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. 
You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. In verses three through five, if you have not already picked up on it, I'd like you to notice the contrast that Paul is making here between the church and the world. Notice that the world is described as saying, peace, safety. It's important to note that the church is not making this statement, peace and safety. The world is. What I find fascinating is that there's really nothing new. Throughout, his, throughout the history of, let's go all the way back to the Old Testament. Throughout the history of the nation of Israel, recorded for us in the Old Testament, time and time again, there would be false prophets that would present themselves before the king and before the people, and they would give a word of exactly this, peace and safety, when in actuality there was God's great judgment impending, impending upon the land. Hey, it's all good. God's going to go with you out to battle. You will overcome your enemies. There is peace and there is safety. But it was a false sense of security. They were against God. They were living wickedly. They were unrepentant from their sin and God was going to judge them. Yet there were people that were saying, hey, it's all good. It's the same thing that those that seek to lead people away from holiness in a personal relationship with the Lord tell those headed down the path of destruction. It's the same exact thing. In Romans, Paul even goes as far to say is that they know the righteous judgments of God. They know that God is going to judge them, but they do it anyway and encourage others to do also. Does that not just sound like the world that we live in? Hey, it's all good. Peace and safety. Everything's fine. There's many roads that lead to heaven. Broad is the path. Hey, you can be whatever you want. Just be sincere. Be at peace. Don't let your conscience or the church bother you. Don't let those Bible thumpers or the word of God cause you any discomfort in that you're living in sin because, hey, peace and safety. There's safety in numbers, right? And there are a lot of us that feel the same way, so that must mean that it's okay. But even in the broader sense, of the meaning peace, national tranquility and prosperity, safety, meaning certainty, stability, and security. The world at the time of the rapture and at the beginning of the day of the Lord will be completely consumed with themselves and with their cares. So much so that they will be asleep with a false sense of safety from external threats as well as holding a perception that no doubt God is dead. We don't need God. I am my own God. I make up my own rules. I do what's right to me. May not be right for you, but you're your own God, so you make up your own rules. I'll make up my own rules. There's no absolute truths, and that's the way I want to live my life. But it's at that very moment in which there is this attitude of self-confidence and might I just make up a word, untouchableness, that destruction will come. Peace and safety will really mean quick destruction as it says at the end of verse three. Listen to what it says. And they will not escape. At that moment, once the church is taken out and the Great tribulation begins, boom, simultaneously there, you will not escape the wrath of God. Revelation even goes as far to say is that there will be people that will try to take themselves out 
with suicide or try to injure themselves, kill themselves, and they'll not be able to. There is no escaping this. This is going to be literally hell on earth. So when you preach the gospel and when you say, you know what, I don't, I don't care how people respond. They may be angry. They may not like it, but they need to know. And if I truly believe what God's word says, then that should give me a sense of urgency to live my life in such a way that pleases God and to share the good news of the gospel with my friends and family and coworkers and neighbors and who else I might come in contact with. I'm going to do what I'm called to do because I know what is coming. And if the wrath of God abides on you, there is no escaping it unless you put your faith in Jesus. Those that miss the rapture of the church will not escape the tribulation upon the earth. You will have seven years of the worst experience of your life. It's painful. I don't think we can even comprehend what God's wrath being poured out upon the world will look like. Now, for you mothers, I mean, how many of you mothers here have children? Yes, that was a trick question because every one of you are called mothers because you bore a child. If you remember what it was like when you went into labor, labor can come upon an expecting mother at any moment. It usually can come when you least expect it or even when you least desire it to happen. I mean, you could be at the grocery store. You know, I remember one time there was a very, very pregnant woman at the grocery store pushing the cart, and it was time, it was go time for her. You know, you could be taking a nap, you could be out on a walk, you could be driving a car, you could be on an airplane, you could be at your Lamaze class or whatever, you could be in the back of a taxi, you could even be sitting here at church. And when it's time, it's time. One thing's for sure is is that when you start labor, there's no getting out of it until it's over. You know, having four children myself now, I have a little bit of experience of what it means to be in a delivery room. You know, Ruth and I have, uh, you know, we've been all over the place from sleeping in the middle of the night and she always makes fun of me because she's like, you sleep while I labor. You're asleep at night in the bed as I'm going through contractions. You know, I remember driving her when we lived right here at Orchard Hills Apartment Homes. When Hudson was born 12 years ago, we had to drive to Hogue Hospital in Newport. And I remember we timed those contractions coming down three flights of stairs. And we sat there and waited for them to pass and then tried to get down another flight and then waited for them to pass and then got down another flight. Finally, we got into our car and then we were driving and I was gunning it. I was. Pastor or no pastor, I was getting my wife to that hospital as fast as I possibly could. But I also remember that every time we went over a bump that Ruth looked like I put that bump there as we were driving. Boom, what are you doing? You know, that baby was coming. And once you're in labor, there is no getting out of it until it's over. This judgment that is coming upon the world is as inevitable and unavoidable as a woman who goes into labor, who's pregnant going into labor. There'll be no escaping the judgment of God for the unbeliever, for they have rejected the gospel of the Lord. That gospel which came through the prophets, through pastors, through evangelists, through family members, and through friends. But Paul writes now back in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 4, but you brethren are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. 
You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So the rapture of the church and the day of the Lord's judgment will come as a thief would come. But for us who believe, we won't be caught unaware because we already know it's going to happen. We already know that it's coming. However, for the world, it will catch them off guard because if you knew, I mean, if you think about it, if you knew when the thief was coming, you would be ready and waiting. I mean, if you got an instant messenger message that said, hi, I'm your neighborhood thief and I have your house scheduled for 2.38 a.m. next Thursday night while you're gone out of town, you would prepare for that. You would be ready for it. See, the day of the Lord will overtake the world unexpectedly, but Contrary to that, for those that have faith in Jesus, we look forward to the return of Jesus. We have that hope to be comforted. Jesus is coming. Yes, I can't wait. For those that don't know Jesus, it's going to be too late. And it's like, oh no, this is terrible. And there's no escaping it. Those that Paul calls brethren are those he describes as, listen, not being in darkness. They're not living in the darkness of sin, nor are they kept in the dark by not knowing what God's word teaches. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you want to turn there real quick, verses 3 and 4, it says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Satan would love nothing more than to keep you blinded to the great things that God has planned for your life and for the end of the world. He would want you to remain in a place of disobedience and separation from the Lord. But see, that wasn't the case for the Thessalonian Christians. Neither should it be the case for you as the church today. In Acts chapter 26, verse 18, the Lord says, Paul, I have called you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That was Paul's commission. Turn them from darkness to light. Turn them from the power of being controlled by Satan to the freedom of being controlled and under the love and power of God. In Ephesians 5 verse 8 it says, for you, church, Church, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the world. So walk as children of light. And 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 says, For it is is the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All of us have a story of what it was like before Jesus It was the light of Christ that pierced through the darkness, that gave us vision, that gave us uh, the ability to recognize our need for a savior, our need for forgiveness of sins. We are no longer living in the darkness. We are now children of the light. And so Paul continuing on in verse six says, therefore, in light of these things, let us not sleep as others do, 1 Thessalonians 5, but let us watch and be sober. Verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. The same culture, Greek culture, very similar to ours. Party life, the inebriated life, 
the numb, the pain in reality life. Paul is again contrasting those that are filled with the spirit with those that are filled with darkness. He's contrasting those that have rejected Jesus who consequently remain in a state of spiritual blindness with those that have had their eyes opened to see the truths of God's word. But see, that state of spiritual blindness will continue until the individual puts their faith in Jesus. And because of this blindness, the spiritual blindness, they will miss the signs and the seasons leading up to the rapture of the church and the judgment of God upon the earth. Those that are outside the church, they're not looking for the church to be raptured. They're not looking for the church to be caught up in the air. We are because we know it's coming. And if you're not looking for the church to be caught up in the air, then you're also not looking for the beginning of God's judgment. You're not aware of what God's word says. I think it's fair to say that the world is set on a course heading to destruction and the devil has just put the plane on an autopilot nosedive. And unless you are saved through faith in Jesus, you will land up in a place of destruction. So you today, as the church, us, because you are the light of Christ and not of the darkness, don't be lulled to sleep by the compromise the world is begging of you. Begging you. Don't you realize that the world is pleading and begging and threatening the church to compromise? Even as Jesus taught and Paul reiterates for the church to watch and pray, to be ready, to not be caught off guard, to not be found not ready for Jesus' return, we need to be ready for his return. See, when the church, when the church compromises, when the church indulges in sin, it becomes, let's just call it, inebriated spiritually so it's not in its right state of being. The church is stumbling over itself, causing others to, to stumble as well. People that have walked away from God have very oftentimes been hurt by people professing to be Christians. Or they saw somebody in the church that they admired and respected and they weren't living as Christ and it caused them to stumble. See, when we compromise as the body of Christ, we are not fulfilling our calling. Again, in verse eight here, we, we read, he says, Paul writes, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. And see, see here again, those three words that we see bound together, faith, hope, and love. The church is not able to think or act properly if it's led emotionally instead of spiritually. See, the word of God guides us into all truth and gives us wisdom for life. And as we wear the armor of God, as Paul describes in Ephesians, and as we touch on here in verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians 5, we find that we're fully equipped to do what is needed to stand in the last days as the spiritual warfare becomes increasingly more difficult. So we have faith in Jesus. We have love for the Lord and his people. And we have hope in his return. And one of the most powerful and concise scriptures regarding whether or not the church is to go through the tribulation or not is found 
here in verse 9, it says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. So the rapture has two completely different meanings for the believer and the unbeliever. For the believer, it's the completing of the work of salvation. For the unbeliever, it's the beginning of their encounter, of their encounter with the wrath of God. And so whether we are alive or dead, those who believe in Jesus as their personal Savior will be with him for eternity in heaven, escaping the wrath of God, which, as I mentioned already, will literally be hell on earth. And because of this truth, verse 11 follows by saying, therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. So listen, there's no comfort or hope for those that miss the rapture. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 12 through 17. This is the last book of the Bible. This is describing just a segment of God's wrath being poured out on the world. In verse 12 of Revelation 6, it says, I looked when he opened the sixth seal. And behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Verse 14, Revelation 6, Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? If that doesn't give you chills reading it, I don't know what will. As terrible as the judgment day of the Lord will be, those that have placed their faith in Jesus are not appointed to wrath. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we can find hope. We can find encouragement. We can give hope and give encouragement to others as well. And then lastly, what I'd like to read is from Romans 13, and this is where we will conclude this morning. Romans 13, verses 11 through 14 says, And do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to wake, to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. This is the word for our church today. Jesus is coming back soon. He is coming for his church. Now is not the time to maintain compromise, to maintain hidden sins, to maintain one foot in and one foot out in your relationship with the Lord. Now is not the time to continue rejecting the Lord because he is coming soon. 
And if you are not caught up with the Lord, you will not escape the judgment that is poured out on this earth. And this is why, this is why this church is committed to telling the truth, the whole counsel of God. You may be absolutely offended by this. You may completely disagree with it. You may not like it. You may reject it, and that is your decision to do so. And you can make that, or you can choose this day to receive forgiveness of sins and put your faith in Jesus and have that hope that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To not live in fear of what happens after this life, to not live in fear of God's judgment, but rather be removed from the place of God's judgment and covered by the righteousness that alone comes from Jesus. And so church, are you ready? Church, don't be lulled to sleep. Don't compromise. Don't become apathetic. Don't become ho-hum. Be ready. Be ready. And encourage one another with that. Be that salt. Be that light until it's time for the Lord to take us home. Be that witness wherever you're at. Do good. Help those that are around you. Be a good neighbor. Be a good coworker. Be a good classmate. Be a good employee. Be a good employer. Whatever you do, do it unto the Lord. And do so as a platform to share the gospel with a world that is heading to hell. We need to be aware of these things. We find excitement and hope in that Jesus is coming, but it also should serve as a very, very pointed reminder for our friends, our family members, those that we know that don't know Jesus. It should serve as a very pointed reminder that we need to be that witness to them. So I think there's some exciting things ahead. I think with what's happening in our own country, we can't help but recognize the times and seasons. We know what's happening. We're not going to be caught unaware. So let's live our lives as if Jesus were coming back tonight. He can come at any moment. Let's be ready. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for giving us this place where we can just come for just a short amount of time on Sunday mornings and worship you and study your word. I ask, Father, that you would continue, Lord, to lead us into all things pertaining to life and godliness, that we would be stirred up today, Lord, to follow after you with all of our hearts. And Lord, I pray for those that may be here or listening from some other place that do not know you personally as their Lord and Savior. Lord, if they do not know you, Lord, I ask that today, right now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to their hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would minister to them and that you would reveal how much you love them and care about them, so much so, God, that you sent your only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for their sins. There is no one on the face of this earth that can say, I've never made a mistake and I have never done anything wrong. We all have sinned and fallen short of your glory. But we thank you, Lord, that you demonstrated your love towards us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so, Lord, we ask now with every eye closed and head bowed, Lord, for those that may not know you or those that have walked away from you, Lord, I ask that they would put their faith in you or recommit their life today. And if that is you, 
Whether you're listening to this live or watching this on an archive or hearing a podcast in your AirPods, whatever the case may be, if you know that you've sinned and that sin, you understand, separates you from God and you would like to be forgiven of your sin, you would like to know the God who created you and have assurance that after this life you will spend eternity in heaven, then I'd like to lead you in a very simple prayer of faith. And I'm going to ask that you'd repeat this prayer after me and mean it in your heart as you pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I know that I have sinned. I have done things that are wrong. But I ask that you would forgive me of my sin and fill me with your Holy Spirit. I thank you that you love me even knowing everything about me. And I thank you that Jesus has died on the cross for my sins. Would you fill me with your love and your joy and your peace? And would you give me your strength that I may be who you've created me to be? For I give my life to you today and help me to be ready for Jesus' return. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand. If you prayed that prayer today, I want you to know that if you meant that in your heart, that God in heaven who created this world, who created you to know him, has heard that prayer of faith, that your sins have been forgiven, and that you, because of what the, what the Lord says in his word, that those who are in Christ are a new creation. The old things have passed away. All has been made new. This is a good day. This is the beginning of a new life, a new relationship with God. If you made that decision today, we'd love to pray with you. We'd love to give you some materials to help jumpstart your new walk with the Lord. If you're watching from a distance, maybe you're watching online or you're not here in person, please shoot us an email. We'd love to send some materials free of charge your way to help you and maybe even find you a good church in your neighborhood. But today is a great day. And so church, as we've been encouraged to be ready for Jesus' return, when we see the things that are happening in our own country and in the world around us, I can't help but be stirred up to finish my race strong, to be found ready when Jesus returns. So church, may the Lord bless you today. May he keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May he be gracious unto you. And may he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And a wonderful Sunday afternoon on top of all that. Let's close with a song of worship.